All right, let's uh, pray together. Father, we uh, thank you that you are here in our presence, in our midst. We thank you, God, that uh, you're a good God, and we thank you, God, for your incredible uh, love uh, towards us. And God, we just pray you cover this time in your grace and your power as we hit on this difficult topic today. Uh, God, may you watch over my words, may you watch over our spirits, and God, may you uh, encourage us towards Jesus this morning. Amen. Amen. All right, uh, today we get to talk about uh, the difficult doctrine of hell. Welcome to the junction again. Yeah. <laughs> we uh, have been going through Ephesians, and uh, we've been going uh, verse by verse through this book, and uh, we ended up on a passage talking about the wrath of God, and uh, we don't just want to skip over those things because the Bible talks about it. Uh, we don't want to be people who ignore parts of the Bible or pretend things aren't in there. And so last week we talked on the idea of the general wrath of God, what that means, how that works. We looked at different views that uh, Christians hold. And today we're going to expand on that and talk about uh, the wrath of God in terms of, of hell. And it's not the most exciting thing to talk about. In fact, I didn't want to talk about this. And I prayed, I think, for two weeks, hoping that God would give me a message to speak on something else. But uh, he seemed to say, just go ahead. So if this gets discouraging... I wore my Mr. Happy shirt, so <laughs> you can just look at my shirt, and uh, maybe that will be uh, more encouraging. But, you know, it's important to talk uh, about the concept of the wrath of God, uh, first of all, uh, because it's found in the Bible, and it's found actually quite often. And so uh, we can't just ignore uh, parts of this, because if we claim to be followers of Jesus, uh, this book is about Jesus, and Jesus put his stamp of authority on, uh, on the scriptures, and so we can't ignore that. We also need to talk about the subject because it deals with the character of God. And we will only be as surrendered as much as we trust God. In other words, if there's an aspect of God's character that you really don't trust, or if there's some part of God you're like, hey, I'm just not really sure about this, uh, you will never fully surrender yourself to him. And if you don't fully surrender yourself to him, you will miss out on what God wants to do in and through you. Uh, we need to get to a place where we can just fully surrender before Jesus. But if you're questioning his character, you will never be able to do that. And, and some of the questions we have as believers and non-believers is, you know, what is with the wrath of God? And that's what we sort of touched on last week. And thirdly, this is an important talk, topic because uh, if you spend any time with those outside the church, they have questions on this issue. And maybe you as a Christian maybe have questions on this issue because it's, it's not an easy, easy topic. Maybe you've been talking to someone and they've said, you know, you know, how could your God send people to hell or something like that? And so this is not a topic we could, can uh, ignore, even though it's not the most uh, encouraging uh, topic to talk about. And so... I want to begin by looking at a couple passages uh, where Jesus actually speaks about hell. Uh, Jesus talked quite often about this, this separation that will happen uh, one day where people will spend uh, eternity in the presence of God and there will be people who will be separated from God. Uh, for instance, Matthew 13. Uh, the Son of Man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin, and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. And then a few verses later, he goes on. Uh, Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things, Jesus asked. In other words, this is serious. Do, Do you understand this? Do you understand this is coming, that this is part of the future? And the disciples replied, yes, I understand. And so this is something that we need to understand and we need to grapple with. And even though it's a very difficult topic is, is, is to understand that this is a reality. That there is a separation coming in the future. Now, one of the big questions, and I want to hit on this right at the bat, is this question that uh, maybe we wonder, but a lot of people outside the church will wonder, is how in the world can a loving God, because God is love, that's his nature, send people to a hell, uh, a place that is apart from his presence. Uh, First Thessalonians talks about hell in terms of being separated, being uh, outside the presence of God. Uh, The answer simply is, in a simple way, is God doesn't send anybody to hell. It's it's a choice uh, that people make. In fact, God is doing the very opposite. God is wanting to keep people out of hell. We see in 1 Timothy chapter 2, it says, God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. In other words, God doesn't want anybody in hell. He wants all to be saved, all to be redeemed, all to come into a relationship with him. Uh, We looked at some of these texts last week, Ezekiel 33. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, people of Israel? Or Lamentations 3, for he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone. That is never God's ideal will or his desire for anybody to end up in in hell. Uh, But it's a choice that someone makes when they turn from God and turn to their own ways. In fact, Jesus did the unthinkable in order to keep people from going to hell. I mean, God could have chosen to stay up in, in heaven and to see all of us who uh, have turned our backs on God and could have, he could have left us all, uh, all heading for hell. But Jesus did not do that. And in fact, he comes down and dies on a cross that we may have a way to escape from hell. Philippians 2 says, Christ Jesus, who being in uh, very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. This is the extent that Jesus went to to rescue humanity from hell. And so this idea that God is sending people to hell or his desire, he just can't wait to throw a bunch of people in hell is, is not the case. The very opposite is God is doing everything he can to keep people from hell. But what God will not do is uh, t- 
totally take away our free will because we have this choice. In fact, one of the, the reasons God allows uh, evil to exist in this world, sometimes we wonder, is why does God keep allowing the evil to exist? Why doesn't he put an end to this all? The reason he's allowing this world to continue as it is is because he is wanting more people to turn to him. Again, he's wanting more people to come into relationships so they do not have to spend time in hell. As 2 Peter 3 says, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. That is his return. That is when his full kingdom will come, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish or to go to hell, we could say, but everyone to come to repentance. Now, there, it's God's desire to see all men saved, to all come to repentance. Uh, we get to look at this way. Let's say you fell into a well or a pit or a hole, and you're stuck. You cannot get out. And this is the state of, of us naturally, that we have all turned our back on God. Uh, we don't deserve to be in perfect heaven because we're not perfect. And so we're stuck at the bottom of this hole. But let's say some guy comes along, and he throws a rope down and says, I'm here to rescue you. Now, you have a choice. You can grab onto the rope and be rescued, or you can stay there and say, I'm not taking the rope. Now, if you choose not to take the rope, you can't blame the rescuer, the rescuer for keeping you in the hole. And this is what often happens. People go, well, why would God send people to hell? It's like God has thrown down the rope, but it's our choice whether we grab hold of that rope or not. We can't blame God because he is the very one who has come down to rescue us. Uh, Scott McKnight who is a uh, theologian, New Testament scholar, said uh, hell can exist precisely because God is love. Because God is love, the comic ending is assured, but because he is love, hell is also possible. Love is a choice. Love emerges from freedom. The establishment of freedom, therefore, establishes free choice about love. If God is love, God is freedom. If God is freedom, free choice is part of the world God has made. That is, some may choose not to love God, not to love Jesus, not to be with God forever. In other words, the very nature of love is to give people free choice. Uh, if you take away free choice and you just control someone, make them a robot, that's, that's not true love. So God gives a certain amount of free will in this world, and he doesn't remove that in the world after we die. And so if someone does not choose Jesus and people freely choose not to love God, there is a place, and that place is called hell. Uh, C.S. Lewis uh, said this, there are only two kinds, of people, uh, in, uh, uh, two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. Those who knock, it is opened. And he talked about the idea that the doors of hell are actually locked from the inside. That these people have chosen not to follow God and they don't want to follow God. And so this idea of, you know, how could a loving God send people to hell is actually God is loving and he's rescuing people from hell and does not want anyone to perish, but all to come to salvation. Now, with that, we want to spend uh, our time today looking at some views within Christianity 
of health. And if you know me as a pastor, you know that one thing I like to do is to not just say, here's what I think and this is the only way. I like to give you a, a bigger perspective of what various Christians believe so that you might think through this theologically yourselves and that you might have discussions with each other and that uh, it might spur you to study more. And so we're going to look at some of the views within Christianity on this topic because there's not full agreement. But before I do that, let me give you a really, really quick, quick lesson on how to talk theology because some people really don't know how to talk theology. At the center is Jesus. And then a little bit bigger ring, we have what we call dogma or the dogmatics of Christianity. That's the things that all Christians agree on. Things like the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Uh, Jesus being the only path to salvation. Uh, Jesus being fully God, fully man. Uh, the authority of the Bible that Jesus created this world and governs this world. Those would be sort of the dogmatics, the things that all Christians agree on. And then uh, out we would have the idea of doctrine. This is why we have different denominations, because they take different views on different doctrinal stances, like different views on the end time or uh, soteriology, like how salvation works, reformed or uh, Arminian or Calvinistic or whatever. So there's different doctrines. And then there's a the category of opinion. We all have these little opinions on different things where the Bible is not real clear on. Now, when you're talking theology, sometimes you can have a conversation with somebody and you're talking doctrine or opinion, and you have a different idea. And as you're talking to them, they get really agitated, and they get really angry, and they want to fight you. Uh, and you can't have a decent, calm conversation with them. And the reason is, is because their identity is in their opinion and in their doctrines, not in Jesus. We need to make sure that our identity is in Jesus. Therefore, if someone changes, challenges our opinion or our doctrinal stance, or our view on scripture, we don't freak out. Because we know we are fully loved, fully accepted uh, in Jesus. And so if someone disagrees with us, we can still actually have a mature conversation, and be calm, and be loving. And, uh, and this is really important, especially when you're talking to people outside the church. Because people will challenge everything about your faith outside this church. And if you can't have a calm conversation with someone who disagrees with you, it probably means your identity is in trying to be right. Or your identity is trying to prove that person wrong. Or your identity is in your opinion rather than in Jesus. If you want to be effective in this world, make sure your identity is in Christ. And it allows you to have calm, good, growing, uh, challenging, even fun, debatable conversations with people without your steam coming out your ears and getting fed up and turning that person off or whatever it might be. So that's how you talk theology. Anyways, let's talk about theology. <clears throat> uh, I want to talk about three views of hell within Christianity. I'm going to give some pros and cons to each view. And hopefully that will spur some discussion amongst yourselves afterwards. And I call these three Christian views. Some of these are more on the fringe of Christianity. Uh, because all three of these views would agree on the dogmatics of Christianity. They would agree on the authority of the Bible. They would agree on the triune God, Jesus being fully God, fully man. All three of these views would believe in salvation only through Christ. All three of these views would believe that there are consequences to not believing in Christ. All three of these views would uh, believe in some sort of hell. And so would agree on the fundamentals of the faith. And these three views are this. Uh, there's the traditional view of eternal conscience torment. This is uh, the most common view within Christianity. There's conditionalism 
sometimes called conditional immortality or annihilationism. And then there's Christian universalism, sometimes known as universal restoration, universal redemption, or evangelical universalism. And uh, this message is going to be a little different because it's going to feel like a Bible class, okay? And as I talked about last week, some messages are more mind, some are more heart, some are more soul. And it's just the way this turned out. It's kind of theological, lots of scripture. Uh, so just try to hang in there. And so we're going to look at these few, uh, three different views. And I want to start with this one. Uh, Christian universalism, uh, also known by other names. And this is the definition. That God continues to invite repentance after one dies physically and eventually all will willingly repent and come to Christ. God will never stop trying to save his creation until they have all come home to him and have been perfected. Hell is a place where people's sin and evil is consumed. And so this view would still believe that Jesus is the only way to salvation. They would still believe in a hell. Uh, but they would say people go to hell and there, it's where they're purified. And there God continues to work until all uh, eventually accept Jesus. And I want to point out this is very different from universalism in general. Uh, and this is why some people freak out when they hear Christian universalism because they think it's just normal universalism. It's, it's very different, and here's some of the differences. Uh, plain universalism says all roads lead to God. Christian universalism, or universal restoration, says one can only be saved through Jesus. Uh, universalism says it does not matter if one believes in Jesus or not. Christian universalism will say everyone will eventually believe in Jesus. Universalism, there are no consequences for not turning to Jesus. Christian universalism, there are consequences for not turning to Jesus. Universalism, there is no hell. Christian universalism, hell is for the purpose of purifying, for having people to pay off their sins for another chance of hearing the gospel. Now, uh, here are some of the verses that the people on this team will use. Uh, John 12, Jesus said, when I am lifted up from the earth, uh, will draw all people to myself. And so uh, they really take all to mean all, not just some, they, they mean to take it all. So he will actually eventually draw all people to himself. Romans 5, consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. Same idea in 1 Corinthians 15. As in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. And so they will say, just as when Adam sinned, sin spread through all humanity, that Jesus being the second Adam, when Jesus died on the cross, he will make all humans good and righteous, at least at some point. So all sin through Adam corrupted the whole human race. Jesus will make pure the whole human race is the argument from this view. Uh, Colossians 1, uh, speaking about Jesus, that through him, that he will reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross, that one day Jesus will reconcile all things. And they will say, well, how can he reconcile all things if there are people still suffering in hell forever and ever? That's not reconciling all things if there's still people rebelling and hating God. So they will say that somehow everything needs to be reconciled. Or Acts 3, heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything, not just some 
things, not just kingdom, not just heaven, but they'll say everything. And so there can't be people suffering in hell for all eternity. They'll point to Psalm 22. The whole earth will acknowledge the Lord and return to him. And they take that literally, that eventually the whole earth will turn to him. Yes, people will be sent to hell. Some people might be there for a really long time, but eventually every single person will turn to Jesus. And it goes on to say, all the families of the nation will bow down before him. Uh, they'll use Philippians 2. Uh, At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth. And notice it says, and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And Ephesians 1 talks about how there's going to be the unity of all things under Christ. And they will, they will challenge and say, how is that possible if there are people suffering in hell forever and ever and ever to have all people bow and every tongue confess and this to be unity and this full redemption. And, have, and so that's the challenge of this position towards the other positions. Of course, the question is, how does this work with eternal punishment? Doesn't the Bible talk about eternal punishment? What is this view? How does this view respond? And they will respond, and there's different texts, but generally, that it, the word eternal is not about uh, duration, but about location. And so they will use Matthew 25. Uh, Depart from me where you are cursed, this is Jesus speaking, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. They will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. And so they will say that the punishment happens in the eternal world. So it's not about duration, but it's about location. The location of the punishment, the location of their purifying. is. Uh, and by the way, <coughs> I'm oversimplifying these, these views here because this is a big topic. The other question is like, What's this deal with salvation after death? And so you can go to hell and still have a chance to be saved? Where's that in the Bible? And these are the texts they point to. 1 Peter 3. It uh, says, He went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who are disobedient long ago. And this is uh, a very difficult text, no matter what view you take. But they will say that Jesus, after he died, uh, went into hell and preached to the imprisoned spirits, those people who are disobedient, and, uh, and preach them the gospel. And so they would say, see, the gospel is preached after one dies. Most people will see this as Jesus preaching through Noah uh, back in the day, or some will see this Jesus preaching to the evil spirits, not human spirits, is the more common interpretation of that. First Peter 4 uh, says this, This is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead. So again, they'll say, see, we see the gospel being preached to those who have actually died. And so you don't just have a chance in this life, but you also have a chance in the life to come. Now, most people will not interpret that way. Most people interpret this as the gospel being preached to Christians who had now died by the time the book was written. So they heard it while they were alive, but aren't alive now. Now, common object, uh, objections to this view. Uh, first of all, this view is not widely accepted throughout church history. We do see it in the early church. There are actually some of the church fathers believed in this view. It is scattered throughout church history. It is seeming to be on the rise in Christianity today. Uh, but whenever church history is not widely accepted, that, give us, that should give us some sort of check. Now, church history is not our authority, but it should give us some sort of caution. Secondly, 
The argument is that universalism removes the gift of free will. That is, the Bible says that some love the darkness rather than the light. And to say that every single person will eventually turn to Jesus is like God seemingly to remove their free will. That he's eventually going to force or make everybody turn to him when some people may not. Because they love the darkness more than the light. And so you run into the issue is, is there really free will if every single person is going to be forced or made or eventually come to the idea that Jesus is who he is? The third is, and this is the biggest uh, objection, is that there are many passages about eternal and lasting consequences throughout the scripture. Uh, for instance, Mark 3, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin, or Matthew 12. Anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. Uh, and so these seem to be lasting consequences. Or Luke 16, this is a story Jesus told of two people in hell or a form of hell that are sort of in this figurative story talking back and forth. And it says, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. And so Jesus is talking about this idea that it doesn't seem that you can cross from heaven to hell or vice versa after you die. And so these are some of the common objections to Christian universalism or universal restoration. All right, so the next view uh, is the traditional view, uh, eternal conscience torment. This is by far the main view throughout church history, at least since uh, the time of Augustine, about 400 AD. It became sort of the, the, sort of the set way that Christians have looked at hell. And it says this, that the human soul is immortal and cannot die, therefore hell will be one of eternal conscious torment. In other words, when God creates somebody, their soul can never, ever die. They are immortal. And therefore, if someone rejects God because their soul can't die, they will actually have to experience separation from God or torment forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever because they, they are mortal. And uh, there are lots of texts on this, obviously. I won't spend quite as much time on this one because most of us are probably familiar with this. But Daniel 12. Uh, Everyone whose name is found written in the book will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake. Some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. And so uh, this view says it's everlasting contempt. It's not just a short period of time. It's everlasting. Matthew 25, we already read this verse, but Jesus says they will go to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. And they'll say the eternal life we know is forever, so eternal must be the same. It must be punishment forever and ever and ever, just as life is eternal. Uh, Revelation 20, the devil who deceived them, deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, or the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented uh, day and night forever and ever. And so this is where that, the term eternal conscience torment comes from, that they will be tormented day and night forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever, and, ever, and it just never, ever, ever ends in the traditional view. Uh, Mark 9, hell, Jesus talking here, where the worms that eat them will not die 
and the fire is not quenched. Revelation 14, the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. And so they say it's not just a period of time. It's not just for a week or a month or 20 years. It's forever and ever. And so they will say that uh, hell is eternal and it's uh, uh, eternal conscience torment. Now, some uh, common objections to this view. Uh, number one, that eternal conscience torment makes God out to be cruel and unjust. And they will point to some of these scriptures in Psalm 30, where it says, For his anger lasts only for a moment, but his favor lasts for a lifetime. And they'll say, well, uh, so God talks about God being a God of love, and he is slow to anger. Why is God still pouring out his anger for all eternity uh, when it says his anger only lasts for a moment? Uh, they'll point to Revelation 16. Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. And they will say, is it really just for a loving God to torment someone for all eternity? In terms of, uh, you know, maybe just a good atheist person who just doesn't accept, uh, turn to God. And they've been in hell under torment for 50 million billion years. And that's just like the first day. You haven't even got started because... It's, it's the people say, is that actually just? Is that fair? And this view will often come back and say, uh, well, people have sinned against a perfectly holy God, and therefore uh, that sin is deserving of eternal punishment. And the others will come back and say, well, God taught an eye for an eye, not, you know, a, a eternal life for a small or big sin or whatever. But anyways, the objection is uh, towards God being cruel and, and unjust. The other one is, uh, how can heaven be heaven if there are people suffering in hell for all eternity? And this goes back to the, the evangelical universalist argument. If all things are to be reconciled to himself, if every knee is going to bow, if there's going to be unity of all things, how can that be so? When hell is still there and there are people still rebelling against God and there's people suffering there for all eternity, can you really say that all things have been redeemed? Can you really say that everything's un in unity uh, that every knee is going to bow, even under the earth. So that's one of the other objections. Another one is, uh, all, are all humans actually immortal? Is that actually scriptural? And another objection will be, uh, words used to describe hell in the Bible, like death, second death, and destroyed, are taken figuratively in this view rather than literally. And so this leads us into the third view. Still hanging in there? <laughs> uh, the third view of hell within Christianity and is known as conditionalism, uh, conditional immorality or annihilationalism. Uh, this view uh, was held by church fathers as well. There was quite a debate within universalism, conditionalism, and conscious eternal uh, torment within the early church fathers group. This view is important to understand because this view is really uh, taking a resurgence in Christianity. A lot of scholars, a lot of theologians are taking this view. Uh, I personally think this view has a lot of merit to it. I wouldn't bet my life on it. Um, not nearly I would not do that, but I think it has a lot of merit in terms of uh, actually a, a good biblical argument. And the definition of this is this, that the human soul is not immortal. Immortality or eternal life is a gift from God. Those who receive, uh, refuse to receive the gift of immortality will justly pay for their sins in hell and then cease to exist. Uh, Dr. John Stott, I think it's spelt wrong in your notes, who is known for many as the Pope of Evangelicalism, uh, said this about this view. 
He says, we need to survey the biblical material afresh. I do plead for frank dialogue among evangelicals on the basis of scripture. I also believe that the ultimate annihilation of the wicked should at least be accepted as a legitimate, biblically founded alternative to their eternal conscience torment. And so this view would say that uh, the gift of immortality, that is the soul that lives forever and ever, is not something that all humans have. Uh, eternal conscience torment would say that every single person, the moment God creates them, is created immortal. They will never, ever die. It doesn't matter if you accept Jesus or not, that everybody has, in a sense, eternal life, but some will spend that in eternity in heaven, others in eternity in hell. This view says immortality is a gift only for those who turn to Jesus. Therefore, those who do not accept Jesus will uh, pay for their sin in hell, but eventually, uh, once they have justly and fairly paid for their sins, they will cease to exist. And so uh, here's some text that this view will go to. Galatians 6. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, amen, who alone is immortal. Alone is immortal. Not everybody is immortal, but God alone is immortal. Romans 2, to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. Now, why would you seek immortality if everybody, if it's just automatic? You couldn't do it. So why would you seek immortality if everybody has it? Uh, uh, he will give eternal life to those who seek immortality. Proverbs 12, in the way of the righteous, there is life along that path is immortality. Not every path, but that path, the path of uh, following Jesus. Uh, John three sixteen. this view would take this text literally, not, not figuratively, but actually literally. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. They will have immortality. And if you don't have immortality, what happens? You will perish. Uh, eternal conscience torment would say that perish here is figurative of spiritual death. This view would actually say it's literal. You will actually perish because you do not have immortality. Uh, Matthew 20, 10, uh, Jesus said, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Uh, eternal conscious torment would say the soul can't be killed. So what is Jesus talking about? Uh, rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. This view would take this literally. Uh, not, not spiritually or figuratively. It would be literally that God actually will destroy people's soul and body in hell. It's not just figurative. Or many people will say, well, God really won't do that. But he's just saying that he could. But he can't because the soul is immortal. Uh, this view will take things literally, like death actually means death. Uh, for instance, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. In other words, it's literal. You receive Jesus, you receive the gift of eternal life. If you reject Jesus, it's, it's actually death. Not figurative for spiritual death, but you will actually die and cease to exist one day. Uh, John 10, I will give them eternal life. They shall never perish. And again, death means death, perish means perish in this view. Revelation talks about the second death four times. Again, they would say this is literal, literal, not figurative of spiritual death. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death or the death of the soul. This is, no matter what view you take, you can't argue this, that the Old Testament 
Clearly, this is the view of hell throughout the Old Testament, that the wicked will actually be no more, that they will perish, that they will pass away. The one exception would be the one verse in Daniel talking about uh, uh, being separated eternally. Uh, Psalm 37, do not fret because of those who are evil or be envious of those who do wrong. For like the grass, they will soon wither. Like green plants, they will soon die away. For those who are evil will be destroyed. Again, this view takes these literally, not uh, figuratively, of spiritual death. But those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. A little while, and the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they will not be found. The wicked will perish. Though the Lord's enemies are like the flowers of the field, they will be consumed. They will go up in smoke. Uh, This view will take... The words destroy and destruction, which are some of the most common words in the Bible used of hell. And they'll say that these are actually literally to be destroyed and destruct, not figuratively of spiritual death, which um, the other view will take. So James 4, the one who's able to save and destroy. Give immortality and destroy. And, and the definition actually of the word destroy is to, to, to take away its existence. That's the definition of that word. Matthew 7, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. Uh, One Greek scholar, uh, talking about this, said this, my mind fails to conceive a grosser misinterpretation of language that when the five or six strongest words which the Greek tongue possesses, signifying destroy or destruction, are explained to mean maintaining an everlasting but wretched existence. To translate black as white is nothing to this, and arguing that we need to take these words literally, not figuratively. Uh, What about eternal destruction and punishment? Of course, again, this question comes up with this view, that if people go to hell and pay for their sin, but eventually, uh, because they're not immortal, they haven't received the gift of immortality, that eventually they cease to exist. Uh, The question is, how does this work with uh, the word eternal and eternity? And this view would say that eternal literally can be about duration or it can be about result or consequence. So they're not taking this word and making it figurative, but they're actually saying this word can literally mean duration as an unending, but it also can literally mean the result or consequence. Uh, In other words, if I took a bottle and I smashed it on the ground, and it exploded a million pieces, I could say that bottle is eternally broken. Not meaning the bottle is being smashed for all eternity, but for e- it's never going to be put back together. It's destroyed. It's, it's gone. The bottle is dead. And so it can mean duration or result of consequence. And we do see this in the scripture being used both ways. For instance, Hebrews 5 talks about eternal salvation. Now, is that mean duration or result or consequence? Uh, Because Jesus only died on the cross once. He bought us salvation. We're not for all eternity continually being saved. We are saved. And and Jesus did it once. And so it's not about duration, but about result or consequence. The Bible talks about eternal redemption. Again, is that talking about duration, that we're going to be eternally redeemed for all eternity? Or is that something that we have and we are, it's a result. Jesus died on the cross. It's eternal redemption in terms of we are eternally redeemed. It's done. It's finished. So sometimes this word in the Bible means result, not duration. So this is where this view takes these texts to mean. Eternal destruction. 
is not that someone will be smashing the bottle for all eternity, but the bottle is smashed and it's eternally destroyed. Uh, eternal judgment, that the judgment is laid down, people pay for their sin, they're eternally judged by uh, ceasing to exist. That's eternal judgment. They're never coming back to life. It's done. The result, the consequence is eternal. Uh, or eternal punishment, the same idea, that the consequence or punishment is for all eternity. It will cease to exist, but it's for all eternity. And so the battle, again, with all three of these views is what is eternal or eternally, what does it actually mean? What's the words mean? Uh, another uh, objection to this view is what about this text, uh, Revelation 14? They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. And so here we see the, the idea of torment rising forever and ever. Uh, well, that doesn't seem to mean that you're going to cease to exist. It, means, it seems that torment's going on forever and ever and ever and ever. And this view will say, well, you've got to let Scripture interpret Scripture. And, and so they will go back to the Old Testament. Isaiah 34 uses the exact same phrase, talking about the city of Edom, the land of Edom. It was destroyed. Edom is no more, uh, but it uses this phrase about its smoke rising forever. And so they actually use this as an argument to say Edom was destroyed, never come to come back. It was eternally destroyed, eternally punished. It's never coming back. And so that's what this text, text is talking about, not be, people being tortured forever and ever, but they are, again, eternally punished in terms of consequence and result. This view, which I think has in favor for it, is it actually makes sense of these texts, talking about how one day everything will be redeemed. Everything will come under the unity of Christ. Because eternal conscious torment will say that forever and ever and ever and ever there's people uh, suffering in hell. Uh, and so it's more difficult with these passages. But this view says people will pay for their sin, then they will cease to exist. And so there will be a day where there actually will be no evil in the universe. There will be a day where there is no one rebelling against God anymore. There will be a day when all things are reconciled to himself and that every knee should bow because those who did not have the gift of immortality have eventually uh, ceased to exist. Uh, this view would also say that people like Hitler uh, would obviously spend more time in punishment, uh, paying for the sins in hell, than someone who maybe just didn't want uh, God in their life. Now, common object, uh, objections to this view. Uh, another big one. Uh, it hasn't been the dominant view throughout most of church history. We do see it, but it hasn't been the dominant view. That should always cause us to go, we need to really look into this. Now, church history is not our final authority because for most of church history, Christians have seen the Pope as the authority of the church. Uh, just because most of church history said that doesn't mean we agree with that. Most of church history taught the supremacy of infant baptism. Uh, we don't necessarily teach that. And so it should give us check, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong. Uh, another common ob objection is that this undermines the fear of hell. That preaching that people will suffer for millions and billions and trillions of years in heaven puts more fear into people than saying you're just going to pay for your sins and then cease to exist. And we need to keep the fear of hell in the church as kind of the, the, the view here. Uh, but again, this view doesn't erase hell. This view is still saying that it's a horrible, rotten, last place you'd ever want to go, you're still going to absolutely pay for your sins, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, because you didn't let Jesus pay for your sins, you will still have to. But this view says that God is merciful, uh, that he is 
uh, just in his judgments. He doesn't allow people to suffer for a hundred million trillion years, and that's still day one is the argument back. The biggest objection to this view and the most challenging uh, to this view is this text, uh, Revelation 20.10. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown, and the view is that, that those who reject Jesus would also be there. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And so this tormented day and night forever. And we, we talked about this. This view will say, well, go back to the Old Testament. Let scripture interpret scripture forever and ever. Same idea is used in the destruction of Edom, that Edom is eternally destroyed, never to come back again. And so that's what it's talking about. So anyways, there's uh, the three views of hell for you. So uh, uh, I hope this, uh, just spur you on, have conversations about this. Uh, dig into the scripture. Uh, go on YouTube. There's amazing debates on all three of these. And I hope most of all this is makes you hungry for, uh, to not to say, well, I'm just going to believe what Jesse says. I, I want to study this. I wanna, this. This really confused me. And maybe you did today. Maybe you're like, oh man, this confused me. Good, because I want you to study your Bibles and I want you to pray and I want you to seek and have conversations uh, about this amongst yourself. But the good news, we've got to end with some good news, is that none of you here have to go to hell. Not a single one of you. Uh, because you know the gospel message. Jesus came and he uh, was born as a human, lived as a human, died on a cross and paid for our sin. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And your sin is washed away. And the only thing you have to hope for is this, Psalm 16. Uh, it says, you make known to me the path of life. You fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand. In other words, this future of eternal pleasure, eternal joy. And when you know this is coming, you know, even at your worst day, you know it can only get better. Because the best days are coming. The best days are coming. If you turn your back on Jesus, then these are your best days. The worst days are coming. And no matter what view you take, take on, on, on hell. So I just implore you, if you don't have Jesus in your heart, he is so good. He is so loving. He did everything possible other than taking away your free will to save you from hell. And there's nothing better than just having Jesus in your heart and living for him. Let's pray. God, we thank you uh, for your goodness and we thank you for your greatness. God, we thank you that you did not leave us uh, to have to face hell. That you sent your one and only son to die on the cross that we might be forgiven and filled with grace. God, I pray that we would all live for you, that we'd all be surrendered to you, that we'd all love you, God, that we'd be people who are living the kingdom and living the gospel wherever we go. God, would you give us courage to talk about Jesus to people? Because the reality is hell is real, and, uh, and real people are going there. And God, I pray that it would weigh on our hearts this morning. So God, we pray that you'd fill us, that you empower us, and God, that we love you. So fill us with love, fill us with power. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.